The following is brought to you by the generous support of Clio. Have you ever been accused of doing something you didn't do? Maybe when you were a kid, a friend or sibling blamed something on you so they could stay out of trouble. Fortunately, most of us grow out of that when we get older, but some people don't. Sometimes the desire to stay out of trouble or prison provides a visceral incentive to point investigators in another direction. What if instead of avoiding punishment, someone is rewarded for information, any kind of information, whether it's true or not? What if that information, albeit not credible, points the authorities to an innocent person without an alibi? Maybe that person has made mistakes in their past. Maybe that person's not likable. All of a sudden, a lot of questions are being asked, and the pressure mounts. Maybe that innocent person gets scared and takes a plea deal and finds themselves behind bars for a crime they didn't commit. It happens, and all too frequently. And that's what we're talking about in this episode. I'm Michael Simanchik, Managing Attorney for the California Innocence Project, and this is False Accusations. Spend most of my life in prison Chasing a dream called justice Chasing a dream, chasing a dream Won't somebody please hear my plea Won't somebody please set me free It's scary, but too many people are willing to knowingly and falsely accuse innocent people of serious offenses. There can be many reasons why someone would want to ruin another's life. Maybe it's an act of revenge. Maybe it's about getting leverage over a person. Or maybe it's about something entirely different. In our criminal justice system, it's not uncommon for suspects of a crime to claim another person did it. But a more complicated scenario is when an informant or snitch works with law enforcement, and is rewarded for their information. The rewards can be such a great incentive that an informant might tell investigators anything plausible to keep them coming back for more. We'll talk more about that later. But first, let's talk about the lives that these known-to-be-false accusations can ruin. One of the early cases I worked on for the California Innocence Project involved a knowingly false accusation of a young man that ruined his football career before it had a chance to really take off. Years later, his story became a major motion picture. We represented Brian Banks, whose real-life account was featured in previous episodes. He was accused of rape at the age of 16 by Winetta Gibson, a classmate who purposefully lied to the police. Despite the lack of investigation and evidence, Brian was pressured into taking a plea deal by his lawyer. Ultimately, he would spend a little over five years behind bars for a crime he did not commit costing him a lucrative future in professional sports. Undeterred, Brian decided to fight to clear his name once and for all. And it was a good thing that he did, because as we heard earlier, that fight probably kept him out of even more prison time. It would also give him one last chance to take his talents to the NFL. We are not sure why Brian's accuser, Winetta Gibson, initially lied to the police. But later, after she and her family were awarded $1.5 million in civil damages, it appears that she maintained her lie for financial reasons. And so her ill-gotten fortune meant Brian had to suffer. His life would never be the same, and all of it seemed to happen so easily, just because someone was willing to lie. And that's a scary prospect. Our lives can be forever altered by one person simply making up a story. 
I talked with our California Innocence Project founder and director, Justin Brooks, about these false accusations. He remembers Brian's case very well. Here's what he had to say. She's a 15-year-old kid. I think it always just comes back to that. And having raised two boys and thinking back to when they're 15, who knows why they say what they say and what their motivation was. I mean, on the day of the alleged incident, you know, Brian and Juanetta were making out at school. They were hiding in the stairwell. A teacher came into the stairwell. Brian was afraid he was going to get caught and he was going to get suspended from the football team. So he made an abrupt exit from that situation. So maybe she was upset that he had, you know, hurt her feelings. Maybe she was jealous because he was getting a whole lot of attention from other girls and he was being recruited to play football and was in the media. Who knows what reason she had? And ultimately, I don't blame her because she was a 15-year-old. I blame the adults around her because if they had done any type of investigation, they would have found out what you found out, Michael, which was if you go to the school and walk down the hallway like you did, the story made no sense. There was no way that she was dragged down this hallway where classes were going on and the doors were open without anybody noticing that. And her story just made no sense. And when ultimately I was able to question her about it, she actually forgot that she had said that. And she then changed her story and said that, oh, no, we both walked down to the stairwell together, and then the attack happened. So that's the interesting thing always about lies. It's very hard to hold them together because you don't remember what you lied about. And when it's not the truth, consistency is really difficult. So I don't know. I don't think we'll ever know exactly what her motivation was for saying what she said that day. I don't know that she knows what her motivation was for saying what she said that day. And that's the nature of lying, and it's the nature of relying on people's stories. You know, people are very fallible. People have all kinds of motivations and emotions and say things for whatever reason. But again, when that happens in the criminal justice system, the ramifications are horrendous. But what about the consequences? What happens to a person who knowingly takes so much from another? What could they be prosecuted for when they knowingly and falsely accuse someone of a crime like that? Here's more from Justin. So our experience at the California Innocence Project is that basically nothing happens. It's very, very rare when people lie in court, particularly when they're lying to assist a prosecutor in getting a prosecution, that there's any ramifications later on when that lie is found out. The only case that we've worked on where there's been some ramifications that actually haven't yet come to pass is the Brian Banks case. And in the Brian Banks case, you had this 15-year-old girl who claimed that Brian had raped her. And Brian ends up going to prison uh, for six years, ends up on parole for five more years. And based on that lie, you know, th there was no further investigation in the case. It was a rape case. And even though the reporting was done on the same day as the alleged incident, and the reporting was done from the school where she claimed it occurred. There was no DNA discovered, and there really should have been. Uh, so there was no forensic evidence. There was no other physical evidence. The case was simply based on a story by a 15-year-old girl. And then years later, she came forward and recanted, said that it never happened. Uh, we went to court. 
We were ultimately able to exonerate Brian. And that was a unique case in that it became a global news story. Everybody was embarrassed by it. The insurance company from the school district had actually paid out $1.5 million in a lawsuit against the school that now they wanted their money back. So it was a kind of extraordinary case where they did go back after her. She was um, sued for the money. They were pursuing her in a perjury count. But uh, she's disappeared. And as far as I know, nothing's actually happened. And so even in a case that extraordinary, we haven't seen any, any real action. It's just, it's just these lies happen. People recant. We prove that they're a lie. And then everybody walks away. In fact, I always think about the work of the Innocence Project. We exonerate people. So this whole crazy drama occurs where a crime happens. The wrong person's incarcerated. We have all this drama. We go back to court. And then it's like a play at the end of a play where everybody just walks away and there's no real follow-up to any of it. It's bad enough when a private citizen is tempted to falsely accuse another. But how about when law enforcement is involved? Utilizing paid informants is a legitimate part of policing and in some cases a vital way to gather information to fight crime. But encased in this method of gathering information are many moral hazards. Sometimes using paid informants means paying small-time criminals for evidence against more prominent offenders. But how far should that be allowed to go? Should law enforcement be paying burglars to get the goods on drug dealers? Should they pay car thieves to roll over on fraudsters? Who makes those decisions, and what factors do they consider before moving forward? In addition, how reliable is this kind of information when it comes from known criminals, especially if you pay them? What incentives do paid informants have to provide true information? Do juries know when an informant is being paid in exchange for their information? I caught up with Scott Sanders, who is an assistant public defender in Orange County. During a death penalty case he worked on, his office discovered a major scandal involving snitches from Orange County. The story made national headlines. In the course of dealing with that debacle, he became an expert in confidential informants. Here's what he had to say about their reliability. Well, you know, they're the most unreliable witness in the system for reasons that make a lot of sense. They're incredibly motivated. They're often rewarded. They're looking for rewards. And often that isn't disclosed. So it's got sort of a lethal combination for the criminal justice system because, again, they want something in return, sometimes what they're going to get isn't laid out. Very often in Orange County, it wasn't with specifics, at least in a disclosed way. Uh, you know, we have an incredible recording, for example, that was hidden for years where the you know, officers saying, look, the more you produce, the more you get. And that's the message, right? And so that doesn't mean the production necessarily has to be reliable. It has to be favorable to the law enforcement narrative on the case. And so you just begin with that. They, they, they're looking into each other's eyes and they know what both want. The informant wants something in return, and the officer wants something in return. And it's not to help the defendant in proving that he's innocent, right? The message is loud and clear, and it doesn't always have to be transmitted in you know, clear words. It's understood often. And so all those understandings are what jurors don't get. So when that 
informant walks into the courtroom and he says, look, I've been an informant before, but this was something so heinous, so terrible. It's really unrelated to me wanting anything or getting anything. I just felt I had to do this in order to put somebody who did something so horrible behind bars. If there's not disclosure, and very often there isn't, jurors can easily find that credible. And so that's the problem. It's that they're motivated, the police are motivated, and disclosure is little, if any. And so jurors can easily buy what they're selling. And they're often you know, incredibly talented folks in terms of being persuasive. I mean, I, I, I've been up against an, a number of them now. They would be phenomenal car salesmen. And they're actually better than car salesmen in some respects because you don't always know how they're sneaking up on you. And it's it really can poison the criminal justice system, and it has. I mean, I, you know, I don't think there's much of a doubt about that. The big question is how much damage does the use of paid informants do to the innocent? Since even the innocent can be convicted on multiple pieces of bad evidence, it can be very difficult to gauge how much value the jury put in a false accusation provided by an incentivized snitch. But one thing that we can be sure of is that the jury is not seeing the entire picture when it comes to an informant's testimony. And this is where the moral hazard can lie in wait. Questions like, how is the informant being compensated? How many times has this informant testified in the past? And how did this informant find themselves in the same prison cell as the accused? Will often go unanswered, to the peril of an innocent person. Scott had some thoughts about this. The thing about informants that's important people don't always realize is that I think in most places where they are really appealing to law enforcement is where there's a big gap in the case. There isn't a confession. There isn't a statement. There's something's missing. And so they're gap fillers and they're critical gap fillers. So now you have a jury deciding essentially the fate of a defendant based upon the word of an informant that there isn't disclosure that's full in terms of the motives, the benefits, the consideration, the history, all of those things. So everything that you would want to know before you were to put someone's life in peril, which is what a juror is doing, right? It's he's going to set the course of that person's life. It's usually in very serious cases. Very often, those folks who are making the decision just have very minimal evidence and a very persuasive person on the witness stand. And what's the legality behind that? They can obviously provide incentives if they're getting information, but there are some legal requirements, right, whenever they're doing that sort of thing. So they're supposed to disclose every bit of benefit, every bit of consideration they give from food to sentence reduction to anything else that you can think of. That all is supposed to be disclosed for obvious reasons. So jurors can understand whether this person is really doing it because they're influenced by a monumental moment where they want to um, just come clean for the first time in their lives, or whether the reality is something quite different. They've got a long-standing relationship with law enforcement. They're getting benefits. They're anticipating more benefits on their case. So all of that should be, of course, in front of the jury, and too often it's not. These last couple of points are critical. Scott was talking about gap fillers and prosecution's tendency to use paid informants, also known as jailhouse snitches, in cases that are weak. Oftentimes, the jury finds their testimony believable, and that can be enough to push a bad case over the finish line. That is unless the jury knows that the snitch is being paid. The prosecution is supposed to disclose anything that might unduly influence an informant or snitch to testify in their favor. A good defense attorney will ask about this during testimony, so keep an eye out for that. But even when the defense asks, it is possible that the prosecution doesn't have the complete picture. It is possible that the incentives for a jailhouse snitch won't be known by the prosecution. 
Whether this information was kept from the prosecution or the prosecution chose not to ask is not easy to determine. But at the end of the day, it does not matter. The bottom line is that the defendant is not getting the benefit of a fully informed jury. I mean, countless cases have been influenced improperly by unreliable testimony, but testimony that was seen as reliable when the informant testified. Police officers work with paid informants and are ultimately responsible for developing that line of communication. But how far are they allowed to go? Are some criminals so bad that they are considered out of bounds? Are some snitches too untrustworthy to be used in a court of law? What oversight measures are there to make sure the innocent are not ensnared? Detective Gregory McKnight is a former investigator and expert on police use of informants. We talked about the process of recruiting, developing, and ultimately using informants to make identifications. There's a lot of times where I'll be at home at 3 o'clock in the morning and, and I'll get a phone call and uh, watch commander and say, hey, we got this guy, he's in custody and he knows who did your killing. So that could be one way of starting things. Now, obviously, you go in and you interview this individual as a possible witness or if it's a hearsay witness or uh, things of that nature. And you're trying to determine the credibility. Is this guy just trying to get out of jail? Putting a case on somebody? Is he blowing smoke? Which a lot of time they are. I used to tell people, I said, you know, these interviews, when it came to working in South L.A., the murders, when you bring in a gangster and you conduct an interview, if you can get 3% of the truth out of them, you're doing well. <laughs> so... Now, when it comes to the protocols back in the day, there wasn't a lot when it came to informant training. The departments changed considerably. You know, obviously, all the way up to the commanding officer of the division has to, and I believe this is the case, I may be wrong, has to actually interview the, the informant. So you've, you've got an unreliable informant, which would be somebody that, you know, just provided this information that we haven't tested and, and, and things of that nature. So with, with the ATF, we had some protocols that were in place and I had a, I'll give you an example of an individual who provided some information on a, uh, a killing related to the Swans. The Swans are a street gang from the east side of Los Angeles. Originally, they were called the Main Street Swans, but today they are known as the Mad Swan Bloods or the Bird Gang. There's a gritty docudrama featuring them called Dead Homies, which was directed by Billy Wright, whose cousin, Derek Pooh Bear Young, was a member of the Swans and was later killed during a retaliation gang shooting in 1988. The raw film was produced by both the Bloods and the Crips and features real-life gangsters as well as footage of Tupac Shakur and the notorious B.I.G. This informant was black, but he spoke Spanish fluently. And he was a total ladies guy. I mean... He was a lady killer, and that guy could find out information. It was amazing. But the problem was he was a drug dealer, and he was a bad guy too. And I think he started providing information on individuals that, I mean, he calls me up and says, hey, this guy's got a Thompson machine gun. He's going to be at this location. And, and I'm like, yeah, oh, okay. So no, seriously, he's, he's going to be picking this thing up for this amount of money and so on and so forth. And lo and behold, we end up finding this dude and he has this Thompson machine gun. Wow. And I think with this particular individual, we never paid him. But I think he utilized it as 
if he gets himself in a jam, which he did, uh, he's going to call on Detective McKnight, who can put a good word in with the DA and help, you know, by him knowing what was going on in the streets, it provided value to us because he did provide a lot of information and he testified. I mean, I, I couldn't believe some of the things this, this guy would do, but it gave him a, it gave him a bargaining chip in the way of being involved in some of these active murder investigations where, you know, you go to the DA and say, you know, he has helped in these things. And right there is the part I want to highlight. Without a specific agreement or conversation, a bad guy builds the framework for a quid pro quo with law enforcement. There is no actual bargain. There is no written contract. In short, there was no real record of this arrangement, but law enforcement recognizes that an informant has done them a favor. As a result, they are more inclined to help or listen to this informant, and that sense of indebtedness can play out in all kinds of off-record ways. Perhaps law enforcement got a needed bust when this guy got his competition arrested. Maybe the informant turns his favors in to help with a plea deal or to receive a lighter sentence at some later date. With arrangements like this, it is virtually impossible to tell a jury what the snitch received. But if investigators are not careful, they can get played by their informants. And that could mean an innocent person gets implicated. So how can law enforcement make sure that doesn't happen? Here's more from Detective McKnight. I'm going to tell you, detectives, police officers, they get sucked into these guys because they're so smart. And they know how to manipulate. You don't let the informant run you. You know, you run the informant. And that's why there's been so many safeguards that have been put in place by having supervisors involved and interviewing and, and controlling, not meeting with an informant by yourself. And, and and unfortunately, I can't cite all the things that have been put into place, but they've been put into place because of situations where they provided BS information or they're utilizing it, you know, to their benefit. You've got to look at what the motivation is. So the most dangerous is they're going to be putting a case on an innocent individual who never had a, any type of discussion. And and that's one of the things is, you know, you've, you've got to go through and you've got to vet this individual. Was he really in the cell block with this guy? Or if he says, yeah, I was at this location when this thing transpired. Uh, vetting that. Okay, let, let's talk about who could have been there, what time, and I mean, there's the who, what, when, where, why, and how. Obviously, law enforcement needs informants, and not every informant is going to come from a squeaky clean background. Whether it's a criminal out on the streets or a jailhouse snitch, sometimes vital and legitimate information will come from the planet's most dishonest people. So how do we work with that? Nobody wants to see the bad guys get away with it, but nothing is solved by sending innocent people to prison. How do we strike a balance, and what can we learn from all this? If you were falsely accused of a crime, the first step is to politely demand an attorney and refuse to answer questions. Law enforcement is looking for an arrest, and anything you say can be used against you. So don't talk to anyone, including people being held in jail with you. Don't sign any statements or agree to any plea deals without advice from a criminal defense attorney. Don't help investigators with their case. Don't worry about it if they get mad at you. That's just part of their job. Again, don't talk to anyone. Only talk to a skilled criminal defense attorney first. If someone falsely accuses you of a crime, fully investigate them. You or your attorney should be asking lots of questions. What are their motives? 
why are they saying it's you? Are they working with law enforcement? If so, are they being compensated? How many other times have they worked with law enforcement? Have they worked with the same people over and over again? What's their background? Are they in jail or prison? What crimes have they committed? How long is their sentence? What's their life like behind bars? If you get convicted, you should still follow up. Did that informant's life improve? Was their sentence reduced? Did they receive special treatment or extra privileges? This information may be difficult to find, but don't give up. Your freedom is worth it. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Produced and written by Lawrence Coletti. Audio engineering by Adam Lockwood. Thank you to Clio for their support of the California Innocence Project and the CIP podcast. Special contribution of music and sound elements by real-life exoneree William Michael Dillon. You can find his catalog of work at frameddillon.com. That's framed, D-I-L-L-O-N, dot com. We'll see you next time. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Samanchik, and you've been listening to the California Innocence Project podcast here on Legal Talk Network. The California Innocence Project receives thousands of requests for help each year. This once meant hundreds of document boxes occupying our entire office. Finding case details was nearly impossible, and with an ever-increasing client list, we had to make a change, and fast. After researching our options, we found the perfect solution in Clio and have never looked back. In a matter of weeks, we moved all our files securely to Clio. In addition to reclaiming office space, Clio enhanced our ability to swiftly locate and update client files, as well as effectively collaborate as a team. See how Clio can help your team accomplish its mission by going to clio.com. That's C-L-I-O dot com.